0: Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Revelation 14, 14 through 20, talks about reaping the great harvest and reaping the grapes of wrath, is what we're going to go over today. Well, Revelation 14 itself of the New King James Version of the Bible is packed with a profound message on God's judgment, mercy, and grace. And by the way, it's any translation, but I'm using the New King James Version today. Now in this chapter, we see the saints rewarded for their faithfulness for what is called a great harvest of souls being gathered and the grapes of wrath being reaped from the wicked. Uh, From an evangelical perspective, let's, let's take a look at what exactly that means and what we can learn from Revelation 14 about God's plan for judgment and salvation. Now, the gathering of the harvest of souls is what we see in Revelation 14, 14 through 16. It's a vision. That John sees of an angel flying in mid heaven with the everlasting gospel. Let's look at the text. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, from this passage, we learn that God is gathering a great harvest of souls. That's an unavoidable conclusion to come to after reading the text. Commentators, though, it's really interesting. They see these two harvests, this first one and the one we're going to discuss in a moment, they see these two harvests as either the first being for the righteous and the second for the wicked, or they will either see it as often both for the wicked. We'll talk about that. For the righteous, though, uh, eternal life is provided for the wicked, just an eternal punishment awaits because of their continued abject rejection of of God's grace and the gospel of Jesus. Now some commentators as I mentioned believe the two are for the same harvest, the harvest of the wicked. And the reason they believe that, it is because it's repeated twice in scripture for emphasis. That's the way they view it, showing that God will surely bring it about. Well, it's difficult to go into all the pros and cons of each view, but readers should really avail themselves of study tools that may help them come down on one side or the other. And remember, the overriding goal here is to determine God's meaning here, not what we think it means or what we want it to mean. What is God actually telling us? And some things I really will admit that they seem to be completely unknowable. You can't know them 100%. You, can't, you can believe them, but you can't without doubt sometimes say, oh, no, no, that's this, that, or the other thing. So the use of the words sharp sickle is taken by many to mean, you know, the figure of death, carrying his sickle as he goes through the earth, harvesting human beings. However... It appears that the individual holding this particular sickle may well be the Lord Jesus himself, and in that case, coupled with the fact that a sickle was used in ancient times to harvest the good and bad crops, for instance, wheat and tares, it could mean that he is getting ready to harvest those who have been martyred during the tribulation for their faith in him. And in fact, several commentators note that this particular vision that John sees is very similar to what Daniel saw in Daniel seven thirteen to 14, which is literally the Messiah coming in the clouds at the end of the tribulation. And upon his arrival, one of the first things Jesus will do is judge the nations. That's called often the sheep and the goats judgment. And that's found in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Here's a part of it. Here's the first couple of verses. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, in the context of that judgment, there are two groups, obviously, the sheep and the goats, or the righteous and the wicked, which also means that there will be believers living At the end of the tribulation, when he returns, there's nothing in the text that indicates that these righteous people here with Jesus in heaven uh, were with him in heaven and came back with him, though all believers who died before the end of the tribulation do return with Jesus, as we find out later in in, uh, Revelation. These earthbound believers have clearly not died yet, nor have the unrighteous. There are people still alive. So Jesus will judge all people of all nations and determine who is worthy to enter his millennial kingdom and who is not worthy. So in other words, the only people who get into the millennial kingdom at the start of it will be believers or those who have died and have glorified resurrected bodies. Now, in these three verses, if the vision provides John uh, with a view of the harvest, and again, I'm going back to Revelation 14, 15, and 16, those verses. So, if the vision provides John with a view of the harvest of the righteous, we can still conclude that this harvest is not a task to be taken lightly or done out of anger, but rather out of great love and justice by those who bear the likeness of Jesus himself so there's there's something to be said for that and I think it's very very interesting so we also learn about the wrath of grapes through revelation 14 eighteen and nineteen or eighteen through nineteen here John has another vision of an angel coming up from the altar who had power over fire and who cries out with a loud voice this is the text and another came, angel came out from the altar who had power over fire And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So this angel, who is often referred to as the angel of divine justice, symbolizes the judgment of God on the wicked. And that's clear because it's talking specifically about the wrath of God, whereas the first judgment, the first harvest, didn't really talk about that. And, and the judgment of the wicked, the wrath of God's judgment is represented by the grapes that are cut down, symbolizing the destruction and failure of those who did not accept the message of salvation from the angel in the prior vision. So this passage reminds us that God's judgment is just and fair, And not without purpose. So what we're seeing here in this particular one is a judgment of unbelievers. The earth is ripe for judgment. And folks, if you haven't noticed, the earth is getting to that point. There's so much evil and corruption that is being unleashed on this earth by people who are perpetrating all sorts of corrupt, evil, unjust works. How can we not be headed for God's judgment? That's happening. So the earth is becoming ripe, but it's specifically at this point in the tribulation, it will be ripe. It will be ready for the harvest and the judgment of the wicked. So the whole tone of these verses is Jesus, the judge, preparing to judge the wicked. Two angels have the job. Of reaping the earth, and there is discrepancies and dis- uh, disagreement over who these angels are. If one is the son of man and one one is an angel, we don't really know for sure. We we can base our opinion on what we think that the passage says after study, etc., etc. But it's it's difficult to be dogmatic, in my opinion, anyway. Verse nineteen: the earth produced a crop of unbelievers, which now at the end of the tribulation. Would come into judgment, the angel gathered them from the earth to undergo judgment in god's great winepress, and this is also mentioned in places like isaiah sixty three one six lamentations one fifteen Joel three thirteen it's mentioned throughout the Old Testament, and the harvest is often used in Hebrew scriptures to represent divine judgment hosea six eleven again Joel three thirteen and especially on Babylon, Jeremiah 51, This is also another indication that the two harvests mentioned in Revelation 14 are both pointing to a harvest of unrighteousness. And that's what some commentators believe. Ultimately, each person, you need to decide for yourself what makes the most sense to you and then leave it open for God to fine tune that. And Jesus also likens the final judgment to the harvest of the earth, Matthew 13:30 30 through 39. And the judgment in particular is said to occur at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns to this earth physically. That's one of the very first things he does when he comes back. And following the pattern of uh, Joel 3:13, the scene furnishes two pictures of the same judgment for the same reason that Joel does, that is to emphasize the terror of it. That's an opinion by Thomas, commentator. Uh, then the text 20 uh, says this, Revelation 14, 20, it says, and the wine press was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So that's really interesting. We're talking basically about a battle that takes place and outside the city is an important location. And notice the depth of the blood. We're going to talk about that fascinating indication of what the result of judgment can be. And also an indication that the Lord here clearly will use a battle perpetrated by um, people and uh, as his form, as his arm of judgment. That's what he notes. And uh, that's what we glean from the text. And is it Armageddon? I think so, as a form of judgment on his foes. So this this battle that is where all the world's military and might gather behind the Antichrist to keep Jesus from returning, they're going to literally try to stand against him. When he returns, he destroys the Antichrist with a word of his mouth and then sets up judgment Immediately following that, and there will be such um, a, a, a outpouring of blood from this that it's just going to be an absolute mess. And it's likely, again, not Babylon, but Jerusalem outside the city. The city is a reference to Jerusalem because Jerusalem, as far as God is concerned, is the center of this world. Everything emanates from there. The Old Testament predicted a final battle near Jerusalem in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that is the Kidron Valley, um, just to the east of Jerusalem. So if you can picture Jerusalem in your mind, go due east, immediately east, and that's where the valley, the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and then on the other side of that is the... um, Mount Olive and uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, etc. So all this stuff is referenced in the Old Testament: Joel 3:12-14, Zechariah 14:4, uh, 4. and then you can also look at Revelation 11:2 for that which we've gone over previously. And it seems probable that the blood will literally flow, literally flow up to the height of the horse's bridles, which is about four and a half feet. Now, some places in the Kidron Valley um, that can happen because of the depth of the valley and the width of, of it, the width is very short in some areas. So it's very possible that that blood could pile up. But what is also interesting is I know that blood will find its own level like water. But think about all the people that have to die for this amount of blood to flow. And by the way, 1,600 furlongs, it's approximately 180 miles long. Now, I know that sounds unbelievable, but that's only because we have no clue of how massive Massive and massive this huge military army is once all the nations gather outside of Jerusalem to keep Jesus from returning. I mean, that that's going to be, it's hard for us to imagine, but the Bible says it's going to happen. So it's interesting to note what history says about certain battles that have been fought in various places of the world and how much blood seemed to flow in the aftermath of those battles. So, for instance, the blood is pictured draining out of the Jezreel Valley for 180 miles, as I mentioned. And it's probably flowing eastward down to Herod Valley, to the Jordan Valley, and south all the way to the Dead Sea. Now, here's a quote from a gentleman named Seiss. He says this, When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem... Uh, that was, of course, in A.D. 70. So great was the bloodshed that Josephus says the whole city ran down with blood to such a degree that the fires of many of the houses were quenched by it. When Scylla took Athens, Plutarch says the blood that was shed in the marketplace alone covered all the ceramic objects as far as Dipolis, and some testify that it ran through the gates and overflowed. The suburbs. Well, that's an awful lot of blood. But so historically, we have a couple of instances at least where things like that have happened. So is it a stretch to believe that there's going to be that much blood? No, not if there are millions and millions and millions of military people, personnel, and the whole bit, all trying to keep Jesus from returning to this earth. And when Jesus comes back, it's going to be a massacre. So in conclusion, we can see from Revelation 14 that God is going to gather a great harvest of souls. I believe from both the righteous and the wicked, some believe that it's just those two different ones uh, are mentioned, the harvests are mentioned in Revelation 14, both apply to the wicked. Regardless, God is gathering a great harvest of souls. It is a reminder that we must be faithful to God as Christians and live in accordance with his message of salvation we've got to do his will we've got to be faithful and we've got to determine um how we will walk before christ and we also learn that god's judgment is just and his wrath will be felt by those who do not accept his message Of salvation. And Romans 1 is a perfect chapter that highlights that downward spiral, that progress of every society that continually, continually, continually rejects God's love, grace, and his gospel, and what happens to that society who does that. So, as followers of Christ, though, as believers, as authentic, Christians, it is important to remember the lesson of Revelation 14 and live according to God's teachings so that we may be part of his great harvest for the righteous. And we need to remember God chose to tell us all of this before it occurs so that when it does occur, It will provide and prove to us his faithfulness, as well as his sovereignty over all creation. There's no question mark. There's no guess. There's no wondering, will God be successful? He will. He didn't have to tell us anything, but he chose to do so for our benefit, for his glory. So in light of all this information, how does this all apply to us today, now? Well, summing it up, we've got to be faithful to God. We have to live in accordance with his will. He will lead us if we submit to him. God's judgment is just and his wrath will be felt by those who do not accept his message of salvation. And it should move us as Christians to become better evangelists, spreading his gospel to the lost. And remember, our job is not to convince anyone of the truth of the gospel. Our job is to tell them whether they listen or not, but it is our job to tell them. It is God's job to open their eyes and allow that truth to convince them. That is not part of our responsibility. Our responsibility starts and stops with telling people. And by the way, telling people includes living it. So there's Revelation 14. And uh, I'm sorry there was uh, getting this up late, but uh, I had problems with the video, which is why there is no video for this particular um, excerpt, this particular lesson on Revelation 14. And Revelation 15 is up, and next time you hear from me on Revelation, we will be in Revelation chapter 16. So thanks so much for joining me, and I pray until we meet again that God will open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in Him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective.